Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Gravit? Can anything good come out of Pea Ridge or Harrison? Out of Seattle or San Francisco? Out of Dardanelle or Delaware? Today's gospel lesson is a little bit geography, a little bit theology, and a whole lot of expectation. And if we don't hear what's really going on between Jesus and Nathaniel, we will miss a word of encouragement that feels really important in a time when encouragement seems so hard to find. Look at the way Philip sets up Nathaniel for disappointment. We have found him about whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. That's not a casual invitation. Philip isn't inviting Nathaniel to come and hear a powerful preacher or meet a charismatic leader. He's telling Philip He's telling Nathanael that he has found the singular hope that God's people had been waiting on for a thousand years. This is it, he says. This is the one. This is the person whom Moses in the Torah and the great prophets of our people told us to look for. But as soon as Philip goes on to tell Nathanael that he's talking about a man from Nazareth, all the energy and excitement and expectation in his words evaporate. We don't know a lot about Nathanael. John is the only New Testament author to mention him, and he only mentions him twice, once in today's lesson and once more at the end of the Gospel account when Jesus appears to a handful of disciples after he had been raised from the dead. But whoever he is, Nathaniel seems to know his Hebrew scriptures pretty well. Can anything good come out of Nazareth, he asks. That might sound like a slight against the people from Jesus' hometown, and it might have been. But what Nathaniel was probably trying to remind Philip is that nowhere in the Torah or in the prophets, in the Old Testament, nowhere is Nazareth even mentioned, much less depicted as the place from which the Messiah will come. Bethlehem? Sure, we know that. Jerusalem, Judah? That would make sense. Even Egypt is a possibility, but not Nazareth. As far as we can tell, back then, Nazareth was one stop past nowhere, a tiny village home to some working-class folk with no claim on greatness. Nowadays, it's the largest city in northern Israel, but back then, it wasn't even worth mentioning. The first non-biblical reference to Nazareth that archaeologists have found is from around 200 A.D., There were plenty of other cities in northern Palestine that could have produced a prominent religious or political figure, one of which we hear about today, Bethsaida. Why not Caesarea Philippi? Why not Capernaum? Why not Tiberias? Pretending that the Messiah was supposed to come from Nazareth is like expecting the next president of the United States to come from Ozark 
or Prairie Grove. But despite what the scriptures said, Philip had found someone worth meeting. And despite all his expectations to the contrary, Nathaniel was willing to meet him. They say you only get one chance to make a first impression, and Jesus started working with a deficit. Yet with one sentence, he managed to flip everything around. When he saw Nathanael approaching, Jesus said, Here is truly an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Those are flattering words to say to a stranger, but they're more than just a compliment. Another translation of that line says, Behold a true Israelite in whom there is nothing false. The word translated for us as deceit or false is literally the word for bait or lure. A hunting or fishing word that implied setting a trap for someone by putting on airs or making a false presentation of oneself. In other words, Jesus from the very start identified Nathanael as a genuine descendant of Israel who didn't need any pretense to convince others about his standing in the faith. That means that in the exact subject area from which Nathanael had raised a reasonable objection to Jesus' pedigree, Jesus repays Nathanael's skepticism with a generous affirmation. He compliments the very thing that Nathanael had been using against him. How remarkable. Nathanael, it seems, was immediately set back on his heels by Jesus' words. Where did you get to know me, he asked, making almost as little sense as Jesus' words had made to him. Jesus replied, I saw you sitting under the fig tree before Philip called you. At first glance, that may seem like a strange or even off-topic response, but it could be that Jesus referred to a fig tree because in the rabbinic tradition, scholars of the Jewish faith were said to have gathered in the shade of fig trees in order to discuss the nuances of their religion. If so, Jesus is doubling down on his flattery. Here is a true Israelite in whom there is no deception. But how do you know that about me? because I can tell that you are a careful student of the scriptures. Instead of arguing with Nathaniel, or defending himself, or trying to explain how it is possible that the Son of God could come from Nazareth, Jesus finds and praises the very best qualities of his intellectual adversary. Instead of tearing him down, which when it comes to rabbinical arguments, we know Jesus to be fully capable of, Jesus compliments the skeptic. Well done, he says to Nathaniel. You're right. No one is looking for Nazareth as the place from which God's anointed one will come. But if you'll give it a chance, you'll see some pretty spectacular things. And what is Nathaniel's reaction? Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. What Jesus gave Nathanael was grace. An unmerited, 
undeserved, unearned dollop of favor, the benefit of the doubt, a chance to grow beyond his initial expectations. And that grace had the power to flip everything that Nathaniel had already decided about Jesus on its head. All Jesus did was find the source of the conflict between them and breathe a little grace right into the heart of it. Somehow, if Jesus had decided to pick a rhetorical fight with Nathaniel or make a shameful example of him, I don't think the story would have turned out the same way. Do you? Grace seems to be in short supply these days. When was the last time you went driving through the country? You don't have to get very far outside of town before you find yourself in the middle of nowhere. Some of you live in the middle of nowhere where you can go two or three weeks without even seeing your neighbors. I've noticed that as I get further away from the center of town, the political signs in people's yards begin to change. And although I'm ashamed to admit it, I've also noticed that along with those signs, something begins to change in my heart and in my mind. All of my expectations about who I might meet and what kind of people they might be begins to shift in my heart and in my mind. Why is that? I am a child of the rural South, yet it has become pretty hard to see what part of me belongs out there, even if out there is only a few miles down the road? I don't mean to suggest that the way forward for us is to ignore the very real dangers that arise when political, economic, and cultural differences between us are radicalized and weaponized. And I don't pretend that other people who don't look or sound like me wouldn't have a much harder time if their car broke down in the wrong part of Arkansas at sunset. But I do mean to suggest that doubling down on our worst expectations of other people won't get us anywhere except more angry and more scared and more lost. Remember what Jesus said about himself. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And don't forget what comes next. For God sent the Son into the world not to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. In Jesus Christ, God's grace God's unconditional love is breathed into this world, into each one of us. In him, we are not broken down or torn apart, but built up by God's love and favor. God loves each one of us, not because we deserve it, not because we're any better than anyone else, but simply because of God's infinite goodness and mercy. If God can love you, simply because that's who God is, then that love has the power to free you up to love others in the same way, not because they deserve it, but simply because.
If you can remember that you are lovable, not because of who you are or where you come from or what you think, but just because, then you can remember the same thing about other people. That's the only way that anything will ever change. That's the only way that our expectations will get flipped upside down when the love of God surprises us into believing that we too can love others just because God loves them first.